uh, you can go ahead as you're taking your seat, grab your Bible and open up to the book of Jude. Uh, Jude, if you're looking for it, just a short little epistle fits into our postcard um, prophets and epistles series. It's the second last book of the Bible. Okay, so right before the book of Revelation, a little uh, one or maybe one and a half pages in your Bible. And it's uh, the third shortest book in the New Testament. And before we dive in there, um, I just want to make a real brief announcement. And um, I've been away for a few weeks, and I intended to give you some information before I left. But uh, before I left, we had raised some money um, to support the church plant that we are partnering with in Romania. And uh, our goal was to raise um, upwards of $80,000. And so many of you have given to that, and we just were so thankful for how God has used you. So we just thought we'd give you an update. Um, The work of the ministry there is progressing. Um, They're almost done building it out. Um, I'm encouraged to let you know that we raised $81,000 to support the church. Now, I I should, yeah, praise the Lord. Now, I want to tell you this too. This is, it's encouraging to see how the Lord works. Um, I had an individual in this church who came up to me and said, um, you know what? Whatever isn't raised up to the $80,000 mark, I'm going to meet myself. And our church together collectively raised $40,000. And one individual stepped up and gave another $40,000. And, uh, and I, just, I say that to encourage you uh, that, that God is working. And it's neat to see how God works in different ways with people who have different degrees of capacity. And it's encouraging to know um, that we can partner together with what God is doing in Romania. I hope you are blessed and encouraged. But I can tell you this, the church there is overwhelmed. I talked to Pastor Joseph. He said, we were hoping to get like maybe one or $2,000. And God has exceeded their wildest expectations, and God is allowing the ministry to move forward there in power. He's building his church, and uh, it's so sweet to be a part of that. Um, So I just thought that would be encouraging to start off with because this is going to be a really heavy message. So um, take that, soak it in. It's going to get a lot harder from here on out, okay? Um, I'm kidding. It's not that hard. Uh, I want to begin by asking you just a very simple question. Here it is. Ready? Um, Do you know what good soil looks like? Like, why would I care about that? Like, good soil? Do you know what good soil looks like? See, good soil is typically dark in color. It's typically uh, moist and rich. It's filled with nutrients and minerals that are essential to give life and health to anything that's planted in it. Good soil, you see, is the foundation of great growth and of great health. Bad soil, though, has the opposite effect. Bad soil is destructive, it's damaging, you can't grow anything in bad soil. Sometimes um, what appears to be good soil is actually soil that's composed of things like sand or clay, and sometimes even rock, and it makes it incredibly difficult for anything to take root in, and it makes it very difficult for anything to actually grow and thrive in. Life is essentially choked out because the soil is lacking in those vital minerals that are essential for producing growth. But that, interestingly, that bad, corrupted soil, the soil that appears to be no good or very difficult to grow things in, it actually can be revitalized. It can be reconditioned to make it good for growing. Those destructive elements, the sand, the clay, the stone, they can be removed, and that soil can actually be infused with healthy, um, enriching minerals. Now, it, it takes hard work to get there. It takes a lot of hard work to get the soil to a healthy place, but once it's there, it actually has an incredible effect, and it helps 
maintain itself as those nutrients continue to birth growth and life. But I want you to know, here's the key, here's the key. You have to know what good soil looks like in order to achieve and to maintain it. You know, Jesus once told a parable about soils. He told it to describe the kind of environment in which faith can grow and thrive and the kinds in which it cannot grow and thrive, the kinds that actually choke out life, the kind that don't allow faith to flourish. And as the seeds of the faith are spread, even in the parable of Jesus, it's the soil of the faith that matters most. It's the quality of the soil that the seed falls upon that allows it to experience the life and growth that it's intended to experience. You know, when it comes to the soil of the faith, the church is supposed to have the best soil of all. The church is supposed to have the kind of soil uh, in which the the seeds of the gospel, the seeds of the faith can be planted and, and life is birthed and springs up and health is there and fruit is produced. But sometimes, sometimes, even even in what was once healthy soil, in what were once healthy churches, destructive things can be mixed in. Things can kind of creep in slowly. Sand and clay and stone, things that actually begin to choke out life, things that produce unhealthy faith, things that don't allow for growth. The faith can be quickly corrupted and the church must constantly be on guard and be prepared to fight for the faith. This little book is a call to do just that. This short little book packs a mean punch. Jude comes at us and he calls us to be on guard, to contend, to fight for the faith, as he will say in our text this morning, the faith that's once for all delivered to the saints. But in the fight for faith, here's the key. You have to know what the good soil of the faith looks like. You have to know what exactly it is you're fighting for in order to fight effectively. I just want to read the first four verses with you this morning. This is going to be a three-week series in the book of Jude, and here's how it begins. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ." That's a very potent and powerful way to begin such a short letter. It's important that we kind of unpack this to set the stage for the the following messages. We start this little epistle, and we must begin by asking what the soil of the faith actually looks like. What's the foundation that we're supposed to understand and know about if we're going to fight to protect it and preserve it? Here's what we must know first about the soil of the faith. First, I I fight to know the soil of faith when I'm convinced that I am who he says I am. Uh, This is foundational for fighting for the faith. The faith that we adhere to and believe in actually defines who we are. And it's who we are because of the faith that actually equips and enables us to fight for that very faith. 
It's interesting that in all the New Testament, most of the epistles and letters begin by statements that help us understand our identity. First, let's ask this question, who is Jude? Who, who does he say he is? He defines himself actually very clearly. He's a servant of Christ Jesus, or Jesus Christ, and brother of James. He says he's the brother of James. Now, um, there's a lot of scholarly debate about who Jude was, but the consensus amongst evangelical scholars is that he is identifying himself as the brother of James the Just. Now, that's the, the author of the book of James in the New Testament. Here's what you need to know about James. He was the leader in the church in Jerusalem. He was arguably the key leader at the time um, that the church was kind of in existence in the latter half of the first century. He was known as a righteous man. He was called James the Just. He said he had knees like a camel because he spent so much time praying on them. But what's so fascinating about James is that he's actually the brother of Jesus Christ. He's the half-brother of Jesus. The Word of God tells us that James is, in fact, the Lord's brother. The consensus is that the James that Jude is talking about is James, the half-brother of Jesus. So that would make Jude also, listen, the half-brother of Jesus. What's so interesting here, though, and this is the same with James, is that they never actually identify themselves as the brothers of Jesus. Do you realize that? They don't put that label upon themselves. Others thrust it upon them, but they are unwilling to make that designation themselves, which begs the question, why? I mean, if you were the brother of Jesus, wouldn't you want to let people know? I would. It would seem pretty important. You see, I think that's actually part of the point. It could be a source of pride. It could be a way of wielding authority in an unhealthy and unbiblical way. And they're not willing to do that. You see, James and Jude are both incredibly humble men, and they teach us something about who we ought to be, people of humility. It's so interesting that the brothers of Jesus never identify themselves as such. And even though the Bible doesn't clearly say why, I do believe we can speculate as to why. Here's what I think we need to take away from this. Jude and James, they both noticed this, that their physical relationship is actually subordinate to their spiritual relationship to Jesus. Their spiritual or physical relationship to Jesus it didn't save them. It didn't make them any more important, any more valuable. What saved them, what really truly helped them identify themselves was the fact that they were spiritually related to Jesus Christ. And that's evident in the other term that Jude uses here. Notice what he says. He says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, or a slave of Jesus Christ. Again, just, just consider that right now you have one of the dominant leaders in the church writing this little epistle. James is likely the most um, upfront, influential leader in the church. And Jude is kind of a step below him, kind of on the, the, the ladder of importance in the life of the church. But one of the things that we see Jude do is identify himself in such a humble way, he calls himself a slave. The term servant or, or slave is an indication that in his eyes, his status comes, listen, not from himself, but from the one to whom he belongs. He saw himself as being owned by another. His identity was not in anything he could do, not in anything he had made himself. It was in who God had made him. In the ancient world, in some senses, you actually took on the status of the one you served. So there were lots of slaves or servants in the ancient world, but 
you are identified as, as important by really the, the one whom you serve, the importance of the one you serve. And so here he's saying this, he belongs to the one who is above all. He is a servant, a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. Really what he's saying is this, and this is something that we should embody. Listen, as followers of Jesus Christ, every one of us should be saying the same thing. I am nothing, he is everything. It's not about me, it's all about him. I love, I love the principle that kind of flows out of this, and I, I, would, I just want this to be so a part of my life. Listen, the people who are closest to Jesus are happy to call themselves slaves of Jesus. They're not looking for any credit. They're not looking for any importance. They're not looking to elevate themselves. They are looking to elevate the name of Jesus Christ above all else. They're the ones who are quickest to say, hey, don't praise me. It's not about me. It's not about my glory. All glory to him, Amen. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. We live for his glory alone. Now, we don't know specifically who Jude is writing to. He doesn't actually identify the audience, the specific church or specific believers he's writing to. But he does describe uh, the believers he's writing to, and the labels he gives to them are really descriptive of all followers of Jesus Christ. It's kind of shorthand for those who are saved. Look at what he says in the last half of the second verse. It's to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. This describes the, the Christians that he writes to, and it describes every Christian, but I want you to notice in these three designations, by the way, Jude is going to speak in triplets, uh, in threes throughout this entire little epistle. But right here, he really describes, doesn't he, the believer's past, the believer's present, and the believer's future. Did you catch that? The believer's past and that we are called. This speaks to the reality that, that we are called in eternity past, that God was the one who beckoned us to come into a saving relationship with him. It speaks to the believer's present and that we are loved by God. Right? We, we are those who have the love of God lavished upon us. God has set his sights upon us. His special kindness has been overflowing and is overflowing to us. And listen, I love this. We are kept for Jesus Christ. The believer's future is established. It's set. It's secure. There awaits for every believer something that so far exceeds our wildest imagination. I love this description. It's packed with power. It's packed with hope. It's packed with assurance. It is life-giving. That simple phrase, those who are called. I love that, and I think this is often overlooked in, in so many people's theology. This is intended, listen, to spur us on to faithfulness. The fact that we are called is supposed to be one of the great motivators in the Christian life, that God has called you unto himself, that God has called you for a purpose, that God is calling you to live for him. It reminds us that I am God's because of him. It reminds us that God is the initiator in the relationship. He is the first pursuer. Yes, we are responsible and we respond to that call, but we come, listen Christians, listen, we come only because we are called. I love how Charles Spurgeon 
speaks of this. He talks about the doctrine of election so often, and this really is what this is getting at. This idea of calling reminds us of the doctrine of election, that God has called us and chosen us in eternity past. Spurgeon wrestled with this, and I'll throw this quote on the screen so you can follow along. It's so good. Listen to what Spurgeon says in in light of this. He says, I believe the doctrine of election because I am quite sure that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I am sure he chose me before I was born or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. Amen? (laughs) And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me for I never could find any reason in myself why he would have looked upon me with special love. I love that. People often wrestle with the tension here, and I get it. There's, there's tension, listen, in, in the sovereignty of God in salvation and human responsibility. And one, someone once come up to, came up to Spurgeon and said, Spurgeon, um, how do you reconcile these two truths? And he said, I don't need to reconcile friends. See, these two things aren't, aren't in conflict with each other. They complement each other. Listen, we are the called of God. We are beloved in the Father. I love that. We are children who are loved by our heavenly Father. And listen, you say, why does he frame our identity like this? He wants us to know who he says we are. And we are loved by the Father. Some of us really wrestle with this truth. We struggle to see this because we're so caught up in our sin, in our shame, in our guilt, in our condemnation. We're like, how could God ever love me? I'm not worthy of being loved. Listen, this is a reminder that we are loved in the Father, not because of anything we've done to earn it. It's not based on our status, on anything we've achieved in this life. It's not based on performance. You know, it's not based on our lovability. Isn't that good news? Like, God doesn't look at us like we're little babies, you know, like a parent looks at a new baby, and it's like, oh, they're just so lovable. They're so cute. Just squeeze them, right? Because they haven't done anything yet. (laughs) But that doesn't matter to God. He loves us in the Father. It's not because of who we are, it's because of who He is. And the fact that we're kept, again, just think about what this means. Listen, if you can't earn your salvation, you can't lose your salvation, okay? I mean, the Bible makes it clear. If you are God's children, if you are truly God's child, He has kept you and He is keeping you. And there is an eternity that is established for you in the presence of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Listen, it is a reality for believers that one day, one day you will look at your Savior in the eyes. You have a future, listen, that helps you press on through the present. But it's really the fullness of this phrase that's so staggering. Jude wants his readers to taste something of the overwhelming power and joy of being the called, the beloved, and the kept. I mean, he wants this as a packaged deal. He wants to overwhelm us with a sense of God's kindness and grace. And this is what you must first fight to know. You need to know who you are if you're going to be a soldier in this battle. If you're going to fight at all, you've got to fight to know this first. This is the soil of faith, your identity in Christ, in what God has done for you. Now listen, this is who you are, it's not who you become. And by the way, repeating these, you know, sometimes we think that if we just repeat these things over and over and how I am called, I am beloved, and I am kept, that somehow that's going to make it so. Listen, repeating it doesn't make it so, it's so, so it's worthy of repeating. 
And we need to be reminded of these powerful truths as we press on in this great battle, in this great fight. The soil of the faith is dependent upon the grace of God, not the merits of man. This is a staggeringly beautiful assurance that is provided for believers here. And he's writing to the church, and he's trying to give you that beautiful assurance, and he's trying to give you that strength and motivation, but I want you to see here, too, there is a staggeringly beautiful invitation for unbelievers here. If you're here today, and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, what I've just described is not yet true of you, but it can be. And you need to hear what we, as followers of Christ, have come to know and believe. It's just that there is a God who created you to know and to love him. It's the purpose for which you are here this very moment. Maybe even the reality that you're sitting here in a chair listening to this is evidence of what God is trying to do in your life. He's trying to call you right now this very moment. God is calling out to you. He's whispering in your ear. He's piercing into your heart and he's saying, listen, I know you. I created you. I made you to come and live in my presence for all eternity. I designed you to worship me, to bow the knee to me. God is calling out to you. And the invitation is given to all those who see that they are sinners. I can't get to you, God. I can't earn my way to you. The invitation is not just to hear the call, it's to receive the love. There there is to be in the heart of every person a desire to be loved by the Father. We all want to be loved. We do. It's, It's part of being human. And it's, it's built into our DNA because this is the way God has made us. And every form of love we experience in this world, as good as it may be, only points us to what our heart truly desires, and that is to know the love of the Father for us. So God says, come, I want you to know the love of the Father. You say, how can I, how can I know the love of the Father? Here's, here's how you believe in what God was willing to do to save you, that God loved you so much, he would come into this sin-sick, sin-cursed world to rescue you because you could never rescue yourself. That he died a death in your place on the cross, that he paid for your sin, that he paid the eternal punishment for your sin, that he rose victoriously from the grave. This is how you know the love of God. God says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And you see, there it is. That's how you can know for sure this morning that you have an eternity that is kept for you, secure. You can be today guaranteed assurance that you can be kept for Christ Jesus. Repent of your sins, turn to Jesus Christ, embrace him as your Lord and your master It's fitting to start off that way because God wants you to know first that you are who he says you are. You don't have to be who you try to make yourself out to be. And if that's who you are, if you are one of the called, the beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, listen to his prayer for you and for me this morning. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. May God multiply that to us this morning even as we study his word together. I fight to know the soil of faith, secondly, when I believe what he says to believe. It starts off with our identity. The faith that we're contending for, it forges an identity. It turns us into followers of Jesus Christ. 
But one of the ways that we fight to build that foundation or we ground ourselves is to believe what he says to believe. This is really the the battle of the human heart, to actually believe what is true. Now, it's the battle of the human heart because so often we find ourselves in in situations and in context, sometimes even daily, where we're we're wrestling with our flesh. We're wrestling with what the world tells us to believe. We're depending upon our emotions or our circumstances. We're not being ruled by the truth of God's word. And that can be hard when there are competing voices. And Jude, he knows that. And listen to how he starts. He knows there are competing voices. He knows there's difficulties in the Christian life. He knows in this battle it will become intense. So he says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. I mean, he starts off by saying, listen, I wanted to write this letter of celebration. I wanted to rejoice in our common salvation. I wanted this to be a letter of encouragement and pure joy. I mean, I'm so excited that we're in the family of God together. But as Jude picked up pen and put it to paper and he began to write, something began to stir in his spirit. I don't know why. He doesn't say what shifted his focus. Maybe the Spirit of God prompted him. Maybe a messenger came from the church and brought word of what was beginning to take place in the life of the church. But somewhere, somehow, all of a sudden, the shift takes place in his mind and in his heart. And he moves from wanting to write this letter of celebrating their common salvation to calling them to contend for the faith. He wanted this to be, you know, like, like a parent sending out a letter to, to let people know, and this will be fitting in our context, hey, uh, we just had our baby, celebrate with us, praise God, the family is growing. Instead, he's like a parent who writes, hey, look, we just had a baby, but somebody's trying to adopt them. We need your help. I mean, just imagine that for a minute. Because this is the seriousness and the intensity to which, listen, to which Jude is calling the people of God. He is putting this at the most urgent level in their hearts and minds. He's sounding the trumpet to ready the troops. He's calling the church to get ready to fight the language he uses is so vivid, I found it necessary. I mean, it was no question in his mind to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. Now, that word contend is a very potent word. It's used frequently not only in the New Testament writings, but in secular writings to describe an athlete. And the picture there is an athlete who is intensely agonizing towards a goal or a prize. I mean, it it describes in a vivid way the kind of energy required to excel to the greatest heights of an elite athlete. And the implication then here is this, that there is to be a continual, intense struggle in the lives of believers and in the life of the church to contend for the faith. By the way, the the verb that he uses here is this present active sense. It's an ongoing sense. He looks at this struggle and he realizes, listen, this is always going to be a battle and a fight in the church. Yeah, it may come in different degrees. It may look different ways. There may be different degrees of intensity in this battle, but the battle is going to exist from now until the time that Jesus returns. 
He's reminding us this morning, listen, church, listen, that we are engaged in a battle. There is a fight that is taking place right now, a spiritual war that we are a part of and that we are actually called to engage in. This is a call to action. And this, by the way, verse 3, if you're making notes or you're highlighting things in your Bible, this is the thesis statement of this entire book. This entire book is going to unfold how we contend for the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. It's the entire point of the letter. Why, why is this such an urgent reality in the life of the church? Well, he tells us. Listen to what he says in verse 4, just the beginning. For certain people have crept in unnoticed. He's going to go on to describe them. We'll look at that in a minute. But, but I want you to see, listen, somewhere down the line in the life of the church, there have been people who have slid in under the radar. They came in and they appeared to be a part of the, the family of God. They, they claimed to believe the same things. They claimed to live the same way, but all of a sudden it became evident that they were actually deceivers, false teachers, heretics. These false teachers have secretly slipped in. Again, we're going to look at them in a moment. In fact, the rest of the, the body of this letter, chapter 5 through verse 16, actually begins to explain and expand on what exactly they're doing, and he's going to unfold some things for us. We're going to look at that next week in detail. For now, I want us to focus in on what he calls us to fight for. Did you notice that he says that we are to contend for the faith? Not just faith. This isn't just about your personal faith. It is about the faith. There is something that has been designated as the faith. And it's a faith, as he describes it, look how he defines it, that is once for all delivered to the saints. There's two things to note here. Uh, the first is this, that it's comprehensive. It is the faith. There is no other. The second thing to note here is that it's complete. It's once for all. It has been delivered and passed down. There's nothing to be added or taken away. It's settled. It's final. The faith that he is talking about here can be described or defined as a body of beliefs, a set of truths, or to use kind of religious language, a set of doctrines. These would be accepted Christian teachings. Now, keep in mind, in the latter half of the second century, um, they didn't have all of the letters of the New Testament written down like we have them in a book that was passed along. They did have some letters that were being circulated, but there was nothing that had yet been codified kind of locked in and settled. So much of what they were beginning to believe, even as the New Testament, the early Christian church, was things that were passed on, things that were brought to them through the process of revelation, through prophets and through apostles. There was a lot more word of mouth going on here. So, so they couldn't just kind of stop and check the records, check all the details yet, kind of like we can today. 
but there was a recognized body of truth that was adhered to. There was a recognized body of truth that they all knew and they believed, and yet at some point in time, what was foundational, what was healthy soil was invaded by sand, clay, and rock, kind of just slipped in there without anybody even realizing it maybe. This seems to be referring most to gospel truths, okay? So, so the faith is referencing the body of beliefs that are essential to know if you are going to be saved. Things that we, we just talked about um, earlier on, the, the idea that, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Um, things like the Trinity. In fact, let me just break it down to you like this. Look, there, there are truths that if you refuse to believe, they put you outside the bounds of Christianity. Christianity is not just a, a kind of a free-for-all where you can pick and choose what you want and call yourself a Christian. There are certain truths you must believe to be considered a Christian. Now, I want to help us think through this because my fear is that many people um, have read this in the past and maybe are inclined to read it now or in the future and say, contending for the faith means that we treat everything as being equal, right? Every truth is worthy of fighting for and over. Now, listen, I want to say it like this. All truth is important, but not all truth is equal. You get that? All truth is important, but not all truth is equal. So I want to do this. I just want to give you a helpful grid just to think through this and, and what maybe he's describing to us as the faith. Um, I think we can, we can look at doctrinal beliefs in three different categories. We can look at primary doctrines, secondary doctrines, and tertiary doctrines, things that are of primary importance, secondary importance, and third-level importance, okay? It, it's helpful to work through this because it produces greater maturity and it helps us discern what exactly we're fighting for, what's worthy uh, of going to bat over, what's not, what we can agree on and still have fellowship, what we can disagree on and still have fellowship, and what we can disagree on and not have any fellowship at all. So let me just kind of describe for you primary doctrines. Um, they would include doctrines that are the most central and essential to the Christian faith. So, for example, in the first century, they were fighting over things like the full deity of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ was actually God. That is a primary doctrine. You must believe that to be saved. The doctrine of the Trinity, that God is one, but he is three. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, the inspiration and the authority of Scripture is a primary doctrine. Without that, you have no basis for determining any doctrine. You have no authority. Things like justification by faith, that we are saved by faith alone, and uh, not through any works of our own. We can't earn our salvation. God has purchased our salvation, and he, by his grace, saves us. Those are primary level doctrines. There's just some examples. There's more we could list off. But primary doctrines, listen, they represent the most fundamental truths of the Christian faith. And a denial of these doctrines represents nothing less than an eventual denial of Christianity itself. Okay? They are things that you must believe to enjoy fellowship in the body of Christ. And if you disbelieve any of them, they put you outside the bounds of Christian orthodoxy. You're not a follower of Jesus Christ. Okay, then there are secondary doctrines, second-level importance. Um, believing Christians, in other words, may disagree on some of these things, but this disagreement... Um, it can, but doesn't have to, create significant boundaries between believers. This is how we have um, doctrinal, or, or excuse me, denominational divisions, okay? So 
uh, certain denominations adhere to certain secondary level doctrines that they believe are important enough to cause a degree of separation while still enjoying a high degree of fellowship with other uh, churches that may not believe some of these secondary issues. Some of these issues would include maybe things like the mode and meaning of baptism. Um, that could be cause uh, for a denominational separation, uh, but it may not be. You can, you can believe in a different mode and um, meaning of baptism and be a part of this church. Um, the structure of the church, the polity, what's called ecclesiology, so how the church functions in terms of its leadership roles and just the overall functioning of the life of the church. Some of these things have kind of caused splits in terms of denominations. So there are secondary doctrines, and then there are tertiary doctrines. These are doctrines over which Christians may disagree and remain in close fellowship. You can disagree on any number of tertiary, third-level doctrines and still link arms with believers in this place and have no problems there's no issues at all. Let me give you an example of what I consider a tertiary doctrine, okay? Um, your eschatology, your view of the end times is, for the most part, a tertiary issue. So some of you are like, I don't even know eschatology. That's a fancy word. End times, that's all it means, okay? Theologians use big fancy words for no reason, I know. But, but here's what I mean by that. Um, your view on the rapture, that's a third-level issue, it's just a, a third-level issue. The scriptures aren't abundantly clear, and there's no need to elevate this to a place of primary importance. Your view on the millennium. Some of you still don't know what I'm talking about. That's okay. Don't even worry about it. It's a third-level issue. The, these are issues that are not of primary importance. Now, the problem is that in many contexts, if maybe some of you have come out of a fundamentalist background. In a fundamentalist background, here's the problem, okay? A lot of good things in fundamentalist churches, but one of the problems is this. You take tertiary third-level issues and you raise them to primary-level importance, right? So you'd have a, a view of the pre-tribulational rapture and you look at that and you say, man, this, this is so important. I mean, this is at least a secondary-level issue. So people begin to think like, you know what? I mean, maybe we should have a whole different denomination over this issue when you believe the rapture is. But it actually gets pushed beyond that in some circles where it's like, hey, hey, what, you don't believe in the left behind Bible? I'm not even sure you're safe then. And here's what I would say to that. Um, that is a wrong way to think of a third level doctrinal issue. There are no insignificant doctrines revealed in the Bible, but there are some that are essential for a healthy foundation of truth that we cannot disregard. And what he describes here as the faith more than likely refers to those primary level issues without which you cannot be saved and without which you cannot be called a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, here's what's so scary. Uh, the church began on a good foundation. The soil was healthy, but subtly and slowly sin crept in. Did you notice that? I, I mean, the way that the error had crept in, certain people have crept in unnoticed. It's so subtle. It's so slippery. Here's what you need to know. Most false teaching doesn't come in with a, a horn kind of you know, pounding the horn, screaming out, hey, hey, here's some false teaching to consider. Few people are led astray by overt and obvious error. Some people are. 
Some people are. Some people are really gripped by cults and are brought in. But most error that people are kind of pulled into, they're dragged into slowly. It's subtle. It's slippery. It's mixed in with so much good, so much truth. And so you just, you kind of just slide into it without even realizing you're there. And here, as Jude describes this, he's doing so with a great sense of urgency because he realizes the danger the church faces. You see, as error slides in and it becomes more and more pervasive, the soil becomes unhealthy, nothing can grow, and eventually life is choked out and the church dies. This truth that Jude is proclaiming in the second half of the first century is a truth that is equally as relevant to the church today. We are living in an age of widespread doctrinal denial and intense theological confusion. And just as a a way of maybe helping you, I want to throw up on the screen um, four versions of Christianity to reject. Because listen, here's the reality. Um, Most of us aren't going to slide into absolutely um, obvious doctrinal error, but we may be sliding into some forms of false Christianity that we're not even aware of. There is so much out there that is peddled as Christianity that is so far from it. It's sprinkled with truth, glimpses of truth, but it is far from the truth of the Word of God. So let me just give you kind of four buckets. This is not exhaustive, and there are things that can certainly fit into these buckets, but maybe this will help you even think about some of the things you need to be aware of, and maybe some things that you maybe even be dabbling in this morning. At the very least, it is a a warning to be aware of these things. Uh, the first is this, uh, liberal Christianity. Liberal Christianity. This, this is an obvious one, and if you've been in the church a long time, you understand that liberal Christianity essentially um, rejects the authority of the Bible. That's the starting place. They look at the Bible. They don't see it as authoritative. It's not inspired by God. And so essentially, everything is up for grabs. The problem with theological liberalism is because of its view of the scriptures, everything is relegated to a place of tertiary importance. Every doctrine is minor. Nothing really matters. You don't have to believe that Jesus was the son of God. It doesn't matter. You don't have to believe that he physically died and actually physically rose from the grave. It doesn't really matter. You don't have to believe in the virgin birth. It's not a big deal. A liberal Christianity just dismantles the word of God and um, here's where you see liberal Christianity flourishing in mainline denominations for sure, but here's where it really thrives and where it's really promoted. That's in the, the academic world. So if you like to read um, very academic style works, especially in relation to Christianity, just be aware that you're venturing into territory where liberals uh, pervade the territory. I mean, it's just, they're through and through. Most of them are unbelievers. Most of them don't love God. They don't care about the authority of Scripture all right, let me give you a second a category to consider, and that is this, uh, what I'm calling liberating Christianity, okay? Uh, liberating Christianity, here's how I'm defining this. This is the kind of Christianity um, that is really uh, all about self-help or prosperity gospel. It's liberating, it's freeing, it's, it's a life of no difficulty, no hardship, no trial, no tribulation. That's not God's design for you. God desires only blessing for you. So if you're not happy, healthy, and wealthy, you're doing something wrong. And by the way, if you can't figure out what that is, you just simply have the power of positive thinking. You just believe with more earnestness and zeal You know, Tony Robbins Christianity. He's a little old. Somebody newer that I can pick on. 
it feels so liberating. It's so empowering. And by the way, this kind of Christianity is pervasive in Christian living materials. It is all over the place. This stuff is propagated right now by some of the most popular and influential preachers on the radio, the books you can buy in Christian bookstores and secular bookstores. I mean, this is everywhere. It is flourishing in third world countries because it's a, an easy form of the gospel to believe. It costs you nothing and it supposedly gives you everything. All right, let me give you a third category, and that's legalistic Christianity. That is a form of Christianity that says you have to abide by these rules if you're going to earn a righteousness, or you're only viewed as righteous if you obey all the rules. Now, most of the rules that are impressed upon individuals are unbiblical rules. There are things outside of the Bible. Not that morals and rules are wrong, that they're actually found in the scriptures. That's actually part of what he's going to address amongst the false teachers here in just a moment. But here what we see is this, that, that, that there are forms of Christianity, they masquerade as Christianity, that are all about an external form of righteousness without an internal transformation taking place. Devoid of any heart for God. Let me give you a final and fourth category, and that's this lawless Christianity. This is the opposite extreme of legalistic Christianity. This is lawless. There are no rules. There are no moral guides. The imperatives or the commands of the Bible are forfeited. In fact, if you try to suggest that I am to do anything in the Christian life, you're simply a legalist. Error creeps in to the church, listen, primarily because the truth is unknown, okay? Listen, you say, how does this happen? How do people kind of move? I've, I've watched this. I've seen people who I thought were sound in the faith, strong in the word of God, slide into false teaching, be, be convinced about things that are so blatantly wrong. You say, how does this happen? Here's how I believe it happens most often. Error creeps in because the truth is unknown or neglected, Okay? We can only identify error when we are immersed in the truth. And while we have leaders and pastors and elders who are called at a level to protect the truth, to preserve the truth, to proclaim the truth, I want you to be reminded of who Jude is writing to to contend to the faith. He is not singling out pastors. He is not singling out elders. He is writing to every single follower of Jesus Christ, and he looks at every one of us. He says, listen, if you're a follower of Jesus, it is your responsibility to contend for the faith. You, you got to fight for this. See, how do I do that? How do I do that effectively? If it's part of my responsibility, and this is dependent upon the word of God, let me just give you a few simple ways to do this in your own life. Um, here's how you can do it. First, learn to read God's word, okay? Learn to read God's word. Do you notice how I started there? I didn't say just read God's word. Learn to read. How many of you are reading the word of God and you actually don't know what you're doing? You don't know how to read the word of God in its context. You don't understand what's taking place in redemptive history. You're just kind of reading and you're confused. There is a need in the life of the church to learn how to read God's word. But once you kind of figure out how to do that effectively, to, to draw the meat out of the word of God, here's what you need to actually do. Just get this. This is a new and novel concept. Some of you are going to really be blown away by this. You need to actually read the word of God. Now, there's, there's kind of a little chuckling, tongue-in-cheek, but listen the amount of times I talk to believers, believers, 
I, and I ask them how they're doing, how are, how's your time in the Word of God? The amount of times I hear people tell me they're not reading, I haven't been in the Word of God this week. It is staggering. It is staggering. And I'm going to be flat out honest with you, it is completely unacceptable with the amount of exposure we have to the word of God, with the access we have to the word of God, for a follower of Jesus Christ to say, I haven't been in the word of God this week, you just need to hear this, it is unacceptable. It's not okay. And you know that because you know how you're doing in the Lord when that's happening in your life, right? All right, I'm I'm not making this up, right? This is a reality. You need to read the word of God. Here's another kind of practical tip for you. this isn't law, but this is wisdom. Listen, read God's word more than you read any other words, okay? This is just a great principle. You want to get grounded in the word of God? Read God's word more than you read anything else, at least at the beginning of your spiritual life. If you're immature in the faith, listen, put aside other books and just immerse yourself in the word of God. Eat it up, know it, understand it, meditate upon it, memorize it. I mean, just get it inside of you. Here's another thing you can be doing. Read from trusted and reliable authors. If you are going to read other books, just make sure you know who you're reading. Don't just kind of go willy-nilly and pick anything you kind of think may be good. Find out who writes good quality materials and start reading what they're writing. Here's a really important one. Listen, learn in community, not isolation. A lot of people are dragged into false teaching because they choose to just simply read or try to learn. You know, they're self-taught and they never run their ideas or the theology or the doctrine that they're reading by others. That is a recipe for disaster. Here's something that can apply to you this morning. Listen with discernment. Listen with discernment. Listen, everything you hear that is being proclaimed as the word of God ought to be tested and affirmed. Everything I say from this pulpit is fair game for you to test, okay? You need to. You don't just kind of take it in as if, like, oh, it's got, always got to be true. I mean, Ian's, Ian, Ian's perfect. Just talk to my wife. She'll clear that up in a hurry. <laughs> Listen, we do the hard work to make sure that we're cutting it straight. We want to preach the word of God faithfully, but we are not beyond error. You have every right to test everything. You have every right to question. You have every right to dig in for yourself to make sure that what you're being taught is the truth of God's word. Test everything. You need to get used to saying these words. Can you show me that in the Bible? Okay, that's a good line. Can you show me that in the Bible? How about this one? Ask those who are over you in the Lord. Don't think you know everything. Don't think that you're beyond being deceived. So here's the call to the church, okay? Get up, get ready, get fighting, contend. Fight for the soil of the faith. We have been given some, something so precious and it must be protected. Third and finally, I fight to know the soil of the faith when I do what he says to do. You want to know the truest test of what you believe, here it is. It's in how you choose to behave. The truest test of what you say you believe is seen always in how you choose to behave. Always. What's really fascinating about this letter is that Jude doesn't actually give to us the full extent of the false teaching. It's interesting. He alludes to some things that maybe are being taught, but we're forced to speculate a little bit about the nature of the false teaching. The bigger issue for Jude, catch this, is the behavior of the false teachers and how it betrays the truth of the gospel they profess to believe. 
Look at what he says in verse 4. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were destined for this condemnation. Ungodly people. That's behavior. And look at how he describes this ungodly people who were destined long ago for condemnation. We're going to get into those ideas next week. Listen to this, though. Who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. There's behavior. And deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. Now, this is so, so fascinating, and it is so critical to wrap our arms around here. Here's a powerful test, not only of right belief, but of true belief. How do I live? How do I live? He mentions four things, again, about the false teachers. He's going to explain what he means in the next section. We're going to look at that next week, but for now, he tells what these false teachers were doing, and that helps us to determine what we must choose to do as followers of Christ. It helps us determine what we need to be aware of in others, but listen, listen, for us this morning, what we need to be aware of in our own lives. They challenge the faith in two significant ways. Here's what they did. Here's how they challenged faith. In taking advantage of God's grace and in setting aside God's authority. Those are the two things he hits there at the very end of verse 4. One of the greatest ways we fight for the faith is by making sure we are not the ones in error as well. Now, if we are diligently pursuing the Lord, we will spot those who are deceitfully trying to lead us away from the Lord And as we consider them, we must also consider ourselves. This is what the Bible always calls us to do. When we see people walking in sin, the Bible wants us to hold it up like a mirror and say, hey, am I like this? So let me urge you this morning, then in light of that, to make two commitments, okay? Here's the first commitment. I will not presume upon God's grace. That's what these false teachers did. Lord, help us not to do the same. You see, rather than modeling a life of dedication to increasing conformity to the image of Christ, these people, they exercised their freedom by living however they pleased. In this case, it's defined as sensuality. Now, the term there refers to, for sure, a kind of sexual living, um, a sexual licentiousness, but also to a, a greedy appetite. So these people are defined as people who love the desires of the flesh and who love the desires of the world. They're greedy and hungry for more. They feed the flesh. It's all about what I want and when I want it. I'm going to take what I want. And here's the crazy part. They actually use the grace of God to excuse their behavior. They're like, ah, it's all grace. God will forgive us. It's not that big of a deal. Grace, 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 grace. Live how you want. Sin, 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 because God is so gracious. If that's your view of Christianity, you have a warped understanding of what the word of God teaches about salvation. They lived for the carnal desires of the flesh. They didn't understand what the scriptures teach through and through, that if your faith hasn't changed you, your faith hasn't, what, saved you. Listen, daily we are tempted to presume upon God's grace in a thousand little ways. Every time we are faced with a temptation for sin, we are confronted with this reality. Ah, I can do it because God is gracious. It's not going to be that big of a deal this time. God is gracious. Presumption is one of our greatest sins. You see, to be a follower of Jesus Christ is to move from sensuality to sanctification. Grace is not a license to sin, it's liberation from sin. Don't use God's grace as an excuse for sin, but as a motivation to flee sin. Grace means I don't have to do that anymore. Grace means I'm free from the power and bondage of sin. 
Why would I ever run back to it? Second commitment to make is this. I will not run from God's authority. I will not run from God's authority. Did you catch how they flee God's authority here? It says this, and to deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to know this. This wasn't a verbal denial. They weren't walking in the church going like, Jesus isn't Lord. By the way, I don't believe that Jesus is my master. They weren't saying that. This is a lifestyle denial, okay? It's not a verbal denial. It's not what they said. It's what they showed with their life. It's not that they were declaring their lack of allegiance to the Lord. They were showing it by how they lived. They lived in such a way as to make it obvious, Jesus is not my Lord. I am my Lord. I am the authority. It is one thing, listen church, to say that Jesus is your Lord, it's an entirely different thing to prove it with your life. This is hard. But it forces us to ask this question again. The word of God constantly does it to us. Where in your life are you not like Jesus? Okay? Where? Where in your life are you not like Jesus? Where in your life is Jesus not Lord and Master? Where in your life are you excusing sin? Listen, here's how you know it's an area where Jesus isn't Lord. You're excusing sin, you're justifying it because of your circumstances. Oh, you know, life is really hard, so this is just, you know, this is, it's not normal, but you know what, it's okay in this context. You're excusing it because of your personality. You don't have to be humble, it's just your personality. You're just rough around the edges. We need to let God's word expose areas of our life that are not currently being submitted to his lordship. And this is an ongoing process in the Christian life. It's, it's never ending. The moment you have one thing under the lordship of Jesus Christ, he just shows you an area in your life that's not. You let God's word expose it. You let God's spirit reveal it. And you let God's people affirm you. like, I don't know if there's any area of my life right now. I can't see anything in my life. What do I do if that's the case? You better start praying hard. Pray hard every time you open God's word. Pray that his spirit would move in your heart. And if, if, if kind of that really, if you're like, I just need something now, I, I really need something now, go and ask your spouse. What area in my life is not like Jesus Christ? Just ask them those words. And, and, and sometimes it's hard because your spouse, it's your spouse, you're like, oh yeah, you keep saying that. Yeah, whatever, same thing over and over and over. Just try this, go and ask your kids. It's different coming from your kids, by the way. It's one thing when it's your spouse, right? You ask your kids and you're like, oh, did your mom tell you to say that? This is, this is, listen, I did this this past week, uh, a week ago, I was out with my son, my son's nine years old, and we're driving along, and I'm talking to him about things in his life that, uh, you know, I'm saying, you know, what do you think God wants to change in your life this year, Josh? What are some areas you want to grow in? Where do you, where do you think God is kind of pressing in? And he gave me some really, really good thoughts, and I'm kind of trying to shepherd his heart along some paths, because I know very clearly where he needs to change. And uh, so I said, you know what, son, I'm like, where do you think dad needs to change in his life? What are some areas in my life right now that you see that don't look quite like Jesus? And he looks over to me, and he says, you know, dad, he's nine. He says, I think slow to anger. I was like, well, that's convenient since you seem to be the source of most of my anger right now. <laughs> I didn't say that. I thought it, but I didn't say it. And I said, you know, I took it, I'm like, okay, okay, that hurts, okay? 
when your kids can look at you and see areas of sin in your life, isn't it a powerful thing? It's the grace of God, okay? The grace of God to expose areas of sin in your life. And, and it, was, it was so sweet. I said, I, said, I said, Josh, thank you so much. You're right. I need to grow in patience right now. Uh, there are some areas of my life where I'm, I'm just getting too quick to, to the boiling point in my life, and that's, that's demonstrating some pride. And I said, Josh, you have permission to, say, to speak into my life, Josh. If you see this happening, you can just simply come along and say, Dad, you need to be slow to anger. And I kid you not, that very afternoon, right? You, got, you take this seriously, right? They take it so seriously. I mean, we're sitting in my living room, and my kids, I got three kids, and my youngest is going buck wild, okay? He's just going berserk. He's four years old, and I'm ready to pull my hair out. I'm kind of like, everything is kind of, kind of temperatures being ratcheted up, and I'm trying so hard in the flesh to control my anger. My, my, my volume's going up, and my son Josh looks at me, he goes, Dad, slow to anger. <laughs> I said, you get to your room right now. <laughs> And listen, in a moment, in a moment, God used that little voice to cut deep into my heart and to show me that there are still areas of my life where I need to be sanctified. And God will use people in our lives. He'll use his word. He'll use his spirit. He'll bring out the truth. And in his grace, listen, he'll point us to the one who we are called to look like, his son, Jesus Christ. There are a myriad of ways in which we do not look and act like Jesus and while we have, listen, the greatest responsibility to spot the errors of false teachers in the body of Christ, listen, we have an even greater responsibility to spot the errors of sin in our own lives. Amen? We will not contend for the faith here. Listen, church, we will not contend for the faith here unless we learn to contend for the faith here. This is about fighting for the soil of the faith. So let me ask you again, do you know good soil when you see it? Can you see it in your own life? And as the worship team comes up now and we close our time together, let me just say this. Listen, we are all called to fight for the faith. We are. This is the responsibility of believers, and it begins with what we know. But can I say, listen, that everything we know about who we are, everything we know about what we believe and what we must do is fully dependent upon what we know about our God who has called us in the first place. We could be inclined to make this more about what we need to do, thinking that we need to, to fight the victory and win the victory without realizing that, as was read earlier today, the horse is made ready for battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. Amen? Amen. We are who we are because God is who he is. We believe what we believe because God is truth. And we do what we are called to do because God will do what he promises to do. This is what we are called to, church. May God give us grace. May we be faithful because he is unfailing in every way. Let's pray. Let me invite you to stand together as we do that. Lord, we pray now that you would receive our praise. You are a good and faithful God, and we love you, and we so desperately want to fight for the faith. But Lord, we pray that as we want to do so, Lord, um, in the life of the church and fight for what is true and right, that you would give us a deep burden to be fighting and contending for the faith in our own hearts and lives. Would you make us more like Jesus? Would you root and ground us, Lord, in all that you are, in all that you've done, and all that you promise to do? We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.